To ship, of course. It's time again for Build Engineering DevOps, Release Management, and everything in between. Welcome to the Ship Show. I'm your host, Paul Reed, SoberBuildEng on Twitter, and it's SoberBuildEngineer.com. Who's on the line with me tonight for episode 27, Lucky 27? This is uh, Sasha at Sasha underscore D on Twitter and at BraddyRedhead.com. This is Seth at CheesePlus on Twitter. EJ Sermilla at Sermilla on Twitter. Uh, this is Yusuf uh, at BuildScientist on Twitter. How's everyone uh, doing tonight? Super. <laughs> Sasha, uh, how's the new gig? Welcome back. You've been... Uh, uh, getting acclimated to it, it sounds like. Yeah, it's been it's been pretty busy. I've been traveling, and it's not the usual uh, three days a week kind of travel. It's generally it's been Sunday to Friday right now. Ooh. So it's been rough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But good to acclimate to it. It is, and, and the clients are super so far. They're really great. A lot of really enthusiastic, smart people. So that's been fun. Seth, you recently changed gigs, didn't you? I did. I did. I'm I'm now a technical evangelist, which means I get to talk a lot for a living. It's pretty sweet. That's what I feel like I do most of the time is just talk a lot. <laughs> I yeah, have things to say. Well, it's it's one thing to go from an operations engineer and kind of like doing like infrastructure work, and the next thing I know, I'm on sales calls all the time. So it's been a it's it's been an interesting acclimation. It's it's been fun and totally testing a new set of skills for me. So I've been enjoying it. So does it and, mean and that uh, Bachelor needs an ops engineer now? It might. <laughs> I think I think we're working on that already. Um, but yeah, there's uh, I, I'm still taking care of some of the responsibilities, obviously, because there's plenty of technical debt that I was part of and that I'm not going to run away from. That's you probably the, should. <laughs> if, if, if I was changing companies, that would be easier, <laughs> but I'm just moving around the same company so they still know where I live, and I, I wouldn't want my, my former ops engineer pal to come hunt me down because I would feel bad. And EJ and Yusuf, I didn't get a memo about you switching jobs, so I'm assuming everything's A-OK. Yeah, like with me, I've, yeah, I haven't done anything. <laughs> I'm still doing the same old, same old, and I've actually had a bunch of people bugging me about, like, hey, do you want to come work for X? But I'm like, nah, I, I like being a talking head like Seth. It's pretty fun. Yeah. Well, tonight we're going to be talking uh, branching and merging strategies. It's the topic that everyone loves to uh, get out the yak and shave, so we're going to be doing that tonight. Uh, but first up, as we always do, news and views. First story tonight is uh, from actually a couple months ago. It was a story about cloud provider DigitalOcean using the same SSH host keys uh, on their VM images. Uh, in our 2013 prediction episode, we actually mentioned that SSH key management was going to be a big deal this year, and this is uh, looks like this is an example of that. Uh, did you guys see this this article? Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty hilarious in a not at all kind of way. <laughs> it was kind of a yeah, you, you've you've made the gotten the basics um, the wrong. So good job. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh, it's one of those things too. Uh, you know, I I think we're gonna continue to see more of these. But I wonder if anybody's published like a these are the 18 ways SSH is going to screw you, uh, and you should check for them. Like, well, oh, it's not SSH things. screwing you though. It's somebody who isn't paying attention to how they're shipping things. Well, right. But my point is, if there's like a set of things that you could almost unit test to be like, because I'm sure it'd be easy to write like with an orchestration tool like, hey, go get the host key from every instance and see if, yeah. if any of them match. They shouldn't, you know, stuff like that. But, but yeah, interesting. Got to keep on the lookout for stuff like that. Next up, we have a story from uh, FreeBSD Toolchain News. We'll link to the blog post. It's called C-Ints are Finite Numbers. And basically, it's a story about the FreeBSD team making changes to the math.h and cmath uh, header files to clean up some macros related to testing for infinity and not a number. But what was interesting is when they did this then and then recompiled some of the, the sub-packages and ports, they found uh, it uncovered a whole mass of bugs that were uh, really interesting. Did you guys see this article? Yeah, it's, I mean, that's, that's, kind, of a, that's kind of a classic. 
classic kind of issue. Like, it, I mean, you, you see these come up every now and then. We're just, oh yeah, we've made this. We've made the small change to how we build something or what we check against, and then all of a sudden, every downstream package is suddenly broken. Or not all of them, but the ones who, the ones. Oh, it's who like just... every day with Ruby. <laughs> Yeah, that's. I feel like that. I feel like that. I a love lot Ruby so much, but you know, it is kind of like that. But some days. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I just thought it was amusing that. Uh, I mean, basically, they were. You know, the, the reason the post was entitled "CNs are finite numbers" is because people were doing like is int one, which uh, you know, of course, by the definition of the standard, in the integer type has a finite space, uh, and so those tests are supposed to be used for things like floating point. And of course, uh, we were chatting about this before the show, Seth. They found it uh, on a particular platform. It looks like on the ILP sixty four platform and we were talking about this is probably something you run into all the time with uh, different platforms and libraries on on gaming platforms yeah i mean it's it's one of the nice it's it's it can be both a a burden as well as an advantage when you have a lot of different platforms. Um, at least in, in my experience, you either can catch these kinds of issues a lot earlier because one platform is stricter than another platform. So for you know, in my experience, we'd find a lot of things that were not a, you could get away with perhaps on like a you know an Xbox 360 build, but like the Wii was like no no no, you need to real like you really need to make you know check this particular thing a lot. You know, it needs to be stricter. Right. Um, but at the same time, it also if you if you have a lot of da- or a lot of different platforms, you're going to be hunting down a lot of these bugs potentially, unless you have very good say coding standards or, or sensible kind of linting tools. Right, and sometimes that's not even enough. I remember a Mozilla bug back in the day when they changed the definition. It was a bug related to how uh, in their portable runtime how null was defined, and so if you tested for null in a certain way. Uh, it was actually a, a possibly exploitable bug, and they fixed it, you know, years ago. But I thought it was interesting. It's one of those things, like, you know, when you make changes to to standard libraries like this, uh, you can uncover a lot of interesting assumptions. We were talking about the fact that you learn this stuff in school, but it's usually in the context of like a ten line program, not a half million line game or something. Yeah, it's it gets it gets a lot more complicated when you're at that level, and you just sometimes you're like, well, it compiled, you know, right? Did it did it build and did it pass, yeah. you know? Did it? Hopefully, you've got some kind of tests. But if it didn't, you know, most some people are just like ah, oh, ship it. Like it yeah. works, ship it. What's the warning that everyone loves to ignore? Something about the signed extension will always return true on whatever you know, and you're like ah, it's fine. It'll price. It's, cool. <laughs> it's good. I've I've had that battle with with programmers where it's like look at all these warnings they're like oh they're just warnings they don't really matter yeah, and right, so I yeah. started enumerating you start enumerating them you're like okay guys could we just like reduce the number of warnings like please like I know it's it may not be that hard but yeah it's it's some of those things are just if there's no visibility you're never gonna find them. yeah and we actually had a, a continuous integration build that that uh, where all warnings were failures. And there was finally a project to clean up all the warnings, and I think we found like five bugs. Um, I was going to say, in my yep. experience, when there's a project, it's in the project to clean up all the warnings is just to disable the checking of the warnings. Right, no, we actually, yeah. some engineer decided to d- take like a month and use it as his 20% project. And, and the thing is, is some of the things he had to fix were stupid. I mean, they were like letting the compiler know, yes, this is an unsigned type or whatever it was. But he did end up finding, I think, for every, I think, three fixes to act to just warnings, you know, useless warnings he made, he found a bug. Some, I mean, the ratio was surprisingly high. So those well, warnings actually really matter. Yeah, yeah. They, they do. That's, I mean, that's great that somebody did that. I, I think that man should get a medal. <laughs> like, the last people who do that are, are are few and far between. Oh yeah, yeah. People that will, yeah. And it was funny. He, when you'd see him doing it, and it was oddly therapeutic for him. He was like, "I'm paying down technical debt. I'm like the pig rolling in the slop, and I love it." And oh, I, uh, totally, I totally agree. Like paying yeah. down paying down technical debt like that seriously is super satisfying. 
I've been doing a lot of that recently myself as I've been transitioning, and it's just like I know this is going to cause somebody else problems down the road, so I'm just going to get on that. I don't yeah. know if this works yeah. for anyone else in the world that listens to the podcast or any of you guys, but so at the end of the sprint, our Fridays, everyone is sort of like blown out, so we have technical debt Fridays. Oh, we've actually we have had... Beer. Did that, <laughs> and does that go along with like formal Fridays that... <laughs> He's still doing. I've yeah, I've, I've certainly had uh, not technical. Or we, we don't even call them technical debt, but it was uh, we used to have uh, bug fix Thursdays, where everything that you did on Thursday was a bug fix. It was just you know addressing bugs. It was don't do anything but address bugs. We've also had other ones that are like code review days, where there's you know a bunch of reviews are pending, and you know, everyone's too busy working on their own stuff to review other people's code, and so it's just like okay, everyone today, every do reviews until you've got no more reviews to do, and then code. Yeah, I'm so. Yeah, usually, usually we like super useful. We we fine tooth comb sonar. So we have a sonar job for every one of our standard Java builds, and every night it goes. And so by the time you're at the end of the sprint, there's some heavy cleanup to do, and so everyone just sort of goes over that, and now it's therapeutic for them as well. That's great. Yeah. yeah. Well, last up tonight, we have a story about the stack-ranked ordering that uh, Microsoft used to use. I guess Slate has a post from a manager at Microsoft that had to deal with that, and uh, he tells some interesting tales of what it was like to be sort of in that environment. There have been a lot of kind of rumbling after the stack-ranked stuff came out in that Vanity Fair article last year. Uh, did you guys uh, have a chance to read this post? Yeah, yeah it, doesn't, it doesn't surprise me coming from Microsoft. It, it, it's a huge organization, and it, it seems like a programmer tried to apply programming mentality to people and yeah. that doesn't really work and it's uh, I think I think a word we we've used before was dehumanizing yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah I, I was, it's just kind of like it doesn't surprise me I've, I've been in those same positions at other large you know mega corporations where it's like here's a review it doesn't really mean anything or here's a self review well, fill it, it out and you you can't actually choose the highest rank because well that means you're too good and having managers tell you well well you can't be a a five out of a one out of five scale and it's like but it's a self-evaluation i get to i get to pick whatever i want that's the point right well so he, he talks about that he talks about the fact that they basically took all of the self-evaluations and put them in a stack in the corner and then they had the note cards and they stack ranked all the people and one of the things he actually talks about that was the hardest for him it seems just by reading it is you had to make up an excuse not an excuse an explanation about what their rating meant because the self-reviews didn't factor into it all and the other really funny part about it too is that they used stack rank throughout the entire organization including managers but managers didn't know that they were being stack ranked as well it's one of those classic problems where you like play the game and then you don't realize you're actually also like part of the game too that's this weird yeah that's i mean that's that's what's terrifying because i had I, I know i had managers who were playing the game but didn't realize they themselves were being played or maybe they didn't care you know it's right. like i i'm a company man so i'm just going to do this without actually questioning it and it's it's demoralizing for, especially if employees know. I mean, you may have rumblings, but they put so much emphasis on these self-reviews, and they put so much emphasis on these yearly reviews, and yet they don't actually mean anything. It's just people going through, typically they don't mean anything. It's people, just people going through the motions. Um, so it's, and it's all utter bullshit, and maybe yeah. the people that you're talking about who are still part of the system, a lot of them have learned how to game the system in ways oh, that yeah. most of us in, in tech <laughs> we don't have a clue. Well, that's the worst part is that if you have to game a review system, then it's it's obviously broken. But here's the 
the thing. Here's the thing. All we're of corporate all, is about gaming the system. We're all engineers. If you give an engineer a problem to solve, they will find a way. And we've all been there where you do these 360 review things where other people will evaluate you. Well, what do you do? You go find who those people are and like, you know, you trade. Well, I'll give you a nice review if you give me. I mean, it's... it's. Well, and the I mean, problem I that I have with this own. stuff is that, I mean, that, well, the reason I had to get out is because I have always known that it's utter bullshit. And yet, I cannot stop myself from spending a lot of time and care on these self-reviews that are complete bullshit meant to actually control me and things. And it just, it made me so, it just gave me such an existential crisis that I can't take it. And that's what I finally had to break down and tell the Google recruiter who called me like three times and wanted me to come work for them. I'm like, listen, I'm sure you guys are great, but I'm not going to come work for you because you probably have the same review system that every place else on the planet has, and I can't do it. I'm never doing it again. They're looking at your high school GPA, although they recently stopped doing that because they, they actually said and I thought this was interesting I'll try to dig up the link but they actually found that school performance via GPA correlation had no effect on they had enough data to correlate employee performance and it had no correlation so they stopped doing it well, I'm shocked I really am shocked exactly yeah exactly they, they, I'm, I'm glad that they actually like found numbers to go with what we already knew yeah I'm glad I'm glad they proved that people's performance in you know especially like in, in high school and college had nothing to do because I know my GPA was not great in college I was busy having fun in college and, and <laughs> learning and learning fun things but at the same time I was like well I'm in college now I'm going to go into the real world and have a job and probably work you know eight hours a day instead of studying so I, I feel that that's not always a great indicator yeah. and the fact that but I, with all of these techniques I mean Yusuf yeah, we were talking about this it makes sense because it scales I was, I was just going to mention though and it, it sounds like this is something that uh, somebody at the enterprise level for hey we need to scale this out to I don't know 10,000 or 5,000 plus employees so how do we make this work. Um, not, not that I'm saying that that's the right thing. It's just yes, um, oppression, they, oppressing your employees and dehumanizing them scales really well. <laughs> we always knew that it did. Yes, yes. Viva la industrial revolution. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, next up, branching emerging strategies uh, here on the ship show. Welcome back to The Ship Show. So our topic tonight, branching and merging strategies. It's a topic that uh, Yak riding a bike in a shed that we all like to shave and or paint. Um, this question was actually prompted uh, Brian Berry over at the Food Fight Show. He actually asked a, a very narrow technical question about what does Get Octopus Merge do and how does it work? And we'll talk about that, but we thought it'd be a good discussion to talk about branching and merging strategies because uh, with the advent of Git and GitHub and also kind of a shift in towards web-based services, websites, the models have really changed over the last few years. And a lot of times I hear people just saying, hey, just use Git Flow. And I'm not sure that's actually the right answer, especially for, for different types of development. So I thought we'd start with one of the pretty common concepts when you talk about this stuff is, and we'll probably refer to this analogy a lot, is, is something that was called the tofu scale. Uh, and it was an analogy, yeah, it was an analogy that uh, I think Laura Wingard of Perforce came up with in a paper she wrote, and then used in a book on Perforce. And, and immaterial of your opinion on Perforce, the book is actually pretty good. It gives you a really good historical... It, it kind of actually pulls back and doesn't talk about branching and merging models as much as it does about the, the con- concepts that you would use to talk about it. And so one of the concepts she brings up the analogies is the tofu scale. 
uh, and this idea that uh, as you're developing code, as you have feature branches, you might be using the very soft tofu because the code is very malleable and uh, maybe doesn't have a lot of flavor yet. But uh, as you, as the code gets further along towards release and then towards you know support, the code firms up. You've heard QA teams often call, hey, we're going to bake the code, and it, it sort of firms up. And so there's a, a lot of these models sort of revolve around how firm is the code that you're writing and where do you put it. And one of the actually interesting distinctions that I've seen kind of change, and I, I'm sure all of us have had experiences with you actually push that code further to the edges. So we've all had the thing where you know everybody checks into master or main, right, and then you cut a release branch, and that actually goes away. And it's interesting. That's actually, that model has kind of been reversed. You see organizations doing it both ways now where the model is master is always releasable. Yeah, we regularly do the inverse of that. Right, right. It goes off in a branch or a fork, and at some point it gets brought into the main line. We cut it from there. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting to see that there's been a kind of a shift, and you can actually do it both ways. Uh, and there's a, there are pros and cons to doing that. I think, EJ, we were actually talking about this, about when you have a website or service, that model probably tends to make more sense because you're going for some sort of continuous delivery. Uh, you know, it, it models the cultural value of continuous delivery that master is always deployable. Whereas if you have something like ESX and you're, you're shipping the whole ESX product to enterprises and those support cycles are, or maybe CentOS is another example. Those support cycles are measured on the orders of, of five to ten years. You actually want to push the firmer code out, out to the edges, out to the leaves. Yeah, I've, I've certainly had the, so I, I mean, uh, granted I was, I guess I cut my teeth on version control with Perforce. So the Tofu scale is actually somewhat familiar to me. I have, I do own a copy of Practical Perforce. <laughs> Haters, come at me. Um, so it, def- it definitely makes sense, and especially in, at least in two of the the game instances that I've worked in, that was exactly what we did, where you had you had a branch that was what everyone kind of committed to. It was just kind of willy-nilly. I mean, it wasn't necessarily a feature branch. It was just, you just threw code at it. It was never expected to be stable. And then as you kind of promoted the code up, it would you'd go from a, kind of like a current, or like a, like a, essentially what would be the equivalent of a master branch, and then you would push it into a test branch, and then the test branch was code that was next to be released. And then once you pushed it higher, it was the stage branch, and that's kind of this, you know staging. And so obviously it's getting ready to go live. You're doing stricter checking. QA is spending more time looking at it. And then you'd push it into a live branch. Now, the, the difference I've seen with a lot of places is Sometimes that live branches could be master if you kind of re- reverse that model, but our live branch was really a golden branch. You never actually committed code directly to the live branch. You only integrated into it, and the code you actually used to deploy everywhere was from the staging branch. You actually the live branch was only there as kind of a perfect clean, pristine copy of the code at any given point in time. So say we needed to make provide a code dump to like a, a sister studio, or say we need to do code dumps for backup, that's what it was for. And it, that so definitely fits a, that tofu scale. Here's a question. Do you guys think that that model is falling out of favor? Because that is that is a pretty common model of this this concept of having a golden branch or a release branch. That sounds like but, an old school like promotion model, right? I, don't, I yeah. haven't seen that in like a decade or better. I, I, don't, I don't know where you uh, uh, well, <laughs> I was like, I've seen it within, within, with, well within the past decade. It's still alive and well. I've seen yeah. it well within yeah. the past, like, um, yeah. What, uh, DJ, what makes you, what makes you say that? I don't know. I just so for us, it's like if a real emergency hit and we needed to push code, we can go right from check-in through QA to AMI to auto-scaling it in like 
12 to 15 minutes. Well, There's so the Enterprise no- is generally, uh, I, was, I was at a place earlier this year that was on, uh, they've finally gotten to a 12-week release schedule. Yeah. And yeah. they had lots of different groups developing against the code base, and it was merge hell every couple of weeks there. I mean, it was just well, utter misery. I, I, yeah. I remember that. That's I mean, that's more my experience as well, is that much longer release cycle. And the reason you did the, uh, you had to have all those branches is because you didn't just have that mainline promotion, but you also had branches out to the side. So, mm-hmm. for example, you'd have, like, off of your testing branch, you'd have a feature branch that was, it was about time. So, it's like, okay, we're doing, like, a, I remember one of them was a, a trading card update for the game that had to land right after another, like, a codependent update that actually went through the mainline model. And so, you got these really complicated branching models that, thank God we were using Perforce, because if we were using Git, I would have just, I would have killed myself. Yeah. I, 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 like, that's, I've, I've had this yak shave recently with my current company about, branching models. You know, and... we, you know, that's that's one thing that I find really interesting is, is a couple of things. I think people, uh, you know, younger programmers that, that have never worked on a product that they had to support beyond two weeks or a sprint, they, they talk a lot about, they love that Git allows you to branch easily, but I think we've all been in merge hell, and it's one of those things that I think a lot of developers don't always, you know, branching is easy, merging is hard, and it's one of those things that, like, yes, Git makes branching super easy, but and we're going to talk about all the merge strategies in a moment, but merging is actually pretty complicated, and it is very easy to do a merge that you think you have done correct, and then you find out six months later that you didn't. Paul, are, um, you, are you talking about merging somebody else's code or merging your own code? Uh, I both. Oh, where but, I have yeah. been, it's often you have both. like the person who does, there's a person who does merging, and he they may or right. may not be doing anything. The integration related. engineer. Yep. Yeah. What's really oh, funny God. is like if you you always talk about Perforce, and one of Perforce's white papers they talk about who should own the merge, and they always talk about the person who's closest to writing the code. Yeah, that's a lie. What it would have sunk (laughs) over time is, like, I see that falling in release engineering laps over and over and over again, and usually we're the the least, we're more about the tooling and the automation. I haven't written any of the code, right? And why should I make a decision based on three or four, maybe a dozen different projects that are coming into Roost? And over time, I've also seen a lot of developers picking this up, but it still sounds like you guys are talking about merging code that you've not written or not been even part of the discussions around. But you see this a lot in bigger companies, for sure. Sure. That was my was job that? for two and a half years. Actually. Oh my god! And you're still alive. Did, you, you talk about I did bigger, 357 bigger like... merges. <laughs> I remember exactly how many. Yeah, it's on. Yeah, it's it's 357. Only so one. I of think them that's still in therapy for this. <laughs> yes, I actually have a therapist that I see. Well, I have I have a, actually just a merging therapist, and then I have my regular <laughs> therapist. Um, <laughs> It's, well, so it's, it's that intense. EJ, to your point, though, that I think there are large enterprises that have people that do that, and, and I think probably a lot of listeners may say, well, you know, big, stodgy enterprise, they're doing it wrong. But it doesn't really matter. I, I've, as a developer, I've owned my merges, and maybe you're working on main or working on some feature branch or whatever it is, but then you get a bug report that a fix you've already done needs to be merged out to a release branch. So I'll do the merge of code I wrote, and I'll still screw it up because I wrote it six months ago. Like, I've forgotten. I mean, we've had, I've seen that happen, I mean, even recently, and where we were actually having, so we recently moved to the Gitflow model, and we've, you know, we had a huge, you know, I mentioned the huge jack shave trying to figure out, okay, what are all, like, what do we do with these cases, and how do we tag things, and when do we cut releases? But we actually had a commit where... Somebody thought they committed something. This is somebody who's you know veteran developer. It's not somebody who's meaningless. And kind of we, we launched in that discussion where it's like, God, 
why doesn't now that we're doing this branching, why did he just miss some code? Why did he merge this in? And GitHub threw a misleading message and Git committed without an error, and yet code was missing. And then we kind of had that discussion of, well, is this actually what we want? And then I kind of, I, I totally poked the hornet's nest with like, well, perforce, and, you know, which is not really a viable model for, for how we develop, but at the same time, I knew that it would, it well, shouldn't magically lose code. Well, so I, I will say this. A lot of developers I've seen complain horribly about how CVS did merges, and they complain about how Subversion does merges, and then they, but they never use Perforce. And the one thing I will say is having an auto-merge system with Perforce that actually works is pretty common. I've oh seen, I've seen like so five nice. organizations write their own version of it and have it work. And I've not seen any open source system, including Git to this day, that would handle that use case. My, uh, my kingdom for an auto-merging Git that was even half as good as Perforce. <laughs> I mean, and I've, I've, I, like I, said, I did a lot of merges with Perforce, and I was merging, granted, I wasn't a programmer, so I had addressing that problem that EJ brought up. I was merging code that I didn't write, code in languages that I, I wasn't necessarily well-versed in even. I had to make sure it built, and I knew you know what to look for there, but I was just around the tooling and automation, as, as he said. And it was, I mean, it was scary, but when I was merging something like 20,000 files, auto-merge made it so that usually I had to do three or four like manual merges. There's usually something stupid, like somebody added a, a column to a like a, a tab-separated file or something. So they obviously didn't merge cleanly. Um, right. But that was, I mean, really without that, like if somebody had given that to me with any other merge system, I, I, I mentioned I would have I would have hung myself like within the first week because it would have been terrifying. Yeah. So, so I, I thought the way that you avoid that is by, and let me preface this by saying that I know you can't always do this, but by merging more frequently. Yes, you back should. Back on So I, I understand there are other use cases or whatever, edge cases where you can't always do that, but... Well, I'll give you the uh, use case where that didn't work. And again, this is one of those things where, I mean, it is kind of an open question whether this model is falling out of favor, but the model where you have some kind of golden master branch that Seth was talking about, and there's a fix that you have to apply to something that's been shipped for a year. And so when you go and write that code, you still want it to propagate sometimes back to main. And I can remember when we had these complex enterprise support branching models at VMware that we shaved that yak multiple times a year to make sure we were still doing a process that made sense. But that code might have to merge five or six times to get back to trunk, that fix to get back to trunk. And so you might have you might be merging it days after you wrote it, but it's keep going nightmares. to be it's going yeah. to be applied to code that is separated by a year of development yeah. time. So that's, so that's a use case where you're do, you're trying to do the thing everybody says that you should do, but it doesn't matter because it's still a year difference. Well, to, to speak to that part of my, one of my responsibilities, so in Perforce parlance, it's it's a reverse integrate, and so I would basically uh, merge back down. So if, if I made changes in higher up branches, you would merge them back down to what we would call the softer branches, in, in using the same tofu scale. So you'd go down from you say you made some fixes in your staging branch, you would push those back down through all the rest of the branches. The problem was that if you had branches that were not in that mainline model that, that kind of popped off of like the testing branch or something, say they were feature branches, you could have a feature branch off of your test branch that didn't see the code that was in your, you know, that softest branch bottom for a long time and you could have, have made very large conflicting changes in those branches and boom, they hit each other. And you couldn't put that feature branch, you couldn't integrate it through the rest of the system. So you still would set yourself up for that nightmare merge. Even if you were doing kind of merging everything 
everything very, very frequently, all the way back down. There were some instances where it just was impossible because of release cycles or because of how you had structured your branching model. I mean, it's not that you should do that. I, I railed against it, but there I was, you know, merging code that hadn't seen each other for six months. Right, right. Uh, and nightmares, yes. Well, so one thing, I, other thing I wanted to point out is is this model that Git supports, and, and Mercurial supports it too, right, this of easy branching and branching per feature. It, it's funny, a lot of people see that and they're like, oh, this is the coolest thing. And, and has anyone on the panel ever used ClearCase? Because that was the way you did things in ClearCase. And ClearCase was like, what, 90s, in the 90s was a big thing. And everybody hated it. But Everywhere, everywhere. No, I've I never used it. Thank I didn't you. have to use it. Yeah, I was really happy. I've never heard anything good about it. But <laughs> what's interesting, what I have heard is that it supported some really interesting workflows. And this branch per bug fix was one of them, one of those, one of those models. One thing I, I kind of wanted to touch on before we sort of talked about some specific tools since Brian's question was get specific. EJ was was asking are there are, are there still people that do the models that uh, we were talking we were referring to and that they seemed very old and I was going to point out actually that waterfall model is what Mozilla uses even though they use Mercurial they still have this concept of you land things on an inbound branch and then it propagates through their alpha beta channels that have official builds get built from that and then they have users that use those builds and then eventually they the code goes but it's it's a, actually a very waterfall model even though the tooling is distributed and modern so yeah that that model is still used yeah i mean wow. even even with even with us using git right now we've we've set up a similar kind of model for how we do branching just because it's a it's about kind of ma- is maintaining a little bit of sanity and also just <sighs> committing to master is fine it's it depends on all the tooling you have around it and it's it's one That's of those a really it, good point. it's not that you it's not that either model one is better than the other it depends on your organization and for uh, us at Basho specifically this came up because we we've gotten larger you know we we've, we've got it, at one point you know it was like you had maybe 20 people coding so everyone knew what was going on um, now you have we're 150 some odd people at least and so it's You've got a lot more people coding, and so it's a lot easier. We don't want to be breaking master constantly because now we have people just cloning it and trying to build stuff on it. So master now needs to be a nice, clean kind of not necessarily release, but a stable branch. So it's our priorities have changed, and so the, these things are allowed to shift and change as your company grows. So there's never a one. I don't think there's always a one size fits all. It really depends on what works for your organization, and then more importantly, the tooling around it. Right. You can well, put enough tooling to make it work. Well, and so what I was going to say about that in and one of the major reasons that we wanted to talk about this is because I think it speaks a lot to your company's or your organization's engineering culture about how which model you choose and how you actually do that and whether or not, you know, I think a lot of people become frustrated with a branch model because either they're a newer hire and they don't know, they haven't bumped into all of the problems that the organization has that they've solved for with their branching model. So it may seem like overly complex or maybe stupid. And you see this a lot with like, oh, well, we have certain branches that model hotfixes. And it's like, well, we had to come up with that because we ran into situations where we needed hotfixes, stuff like that. You know, there's a funny I've story. I've that... never been in an organization where a at least one, if not many programmers on the team had serious issues with the branching model just because. Right. Just just because they were religiously opposed kind of thing. And well, you know, I would, used to I play nice a... because they thought they had the right way. And that was I once the... had a developer tell me, who was a huge Git fan, and they said, well, I just don't like branches all that much. I don't like having to deal with branches. And I thought that was very interesting. It was a very interesting sentiment only because I was like, dude, you're using Git. You branch to edit a character in a file. Uh, <laughs> and he was like, yeah. So I was this weird. I never quite understood that. But it, it, you see that a lot where people say, oh, just 
just use just use Git flow or whatever, and it's like, well, you know, when you're doing a game or something, that may not work. On the flip side, a lot of times this, as you were pointing out, gets yak shaved all the hell, and, and then you you build this huge cathedral branching model that you you may never need. One of the, I think, uh, I believe Etsy uses a everyone commits to master model, but they have a ton of tooling around that for right. testing, and they're about rolling forward. So that's just as, a, as an example of somebody doing the complete, you know, because for me, when I heard about that, I was like, oh my god, that must be terrifying. Right, right. I was like, what, what well, is, so, is, their, is their release engineer insane? But right. apparently, but it's not, because they've, they've set it up to work for them, and they've built the tooling and the notifications and all the goodness kind of around it to deal with failures if, say, a build fails or a deploy fails, and so it can totally work, again, just pick pick what's best for your organization. Right. There's well, so a actually, perfect one. So I actually sure. wanted to tell an interesting story, because we were talking about just general forms of models, so there's like the waterfall model, there's kind of the simplistic model that we were talking about where you cut for a release and things like that, but the, the model that you're kind of talking about is sort of the one code line model where everybody commits to master and the organization has decided to, or, or main or whatever, and has decided to deal with that through process or tooling or whatever it might be. And I was going to tell a story. There's a company that, that you would all know. And they were giving a presentation once, and I, I've seen this presentation twice now, and I, uh, it was very interesting because the first time I watched the presentation and the second time I watched the audience reaction to the presentation. And they were talking about, they use, I mean, they're a huge company, thousands of engineers. They use the one code line model. And when I watched the reactions to them, that revelation that they use the one code line model, you would see this look of horror on these, you know, release engineers' faces and things. It's like, you know, people would start shaking like, oh my god, that would never work at my place. And what was interesting, though, is that it was exactly what you said, Seth. They had a bunch of tooling around uh, what happens when a commit happens in that in that instance, but they also had culture, and you could debate whether or not it was a healthy culture, but the, the way I would sort of describe it is they, at a very high level, had empowered their release engineering team to say to developers, no, we'll back your code out if it breaks stuff. We will unravel stuff you've committed if it breaks the build. And that was part of their engineering culture. Now, again, yeah, then, the treatment that's, of that that's topic. Needed. Yeah, that's, the treatment of that topic, you could figure out whether or not that makes sense. But it was a very, there was a level of discipline about, yes, everybody can commit to master, but there's a sense of responsibility there. And that's what made that work. And, and you could tell that the people shaking their heads, it's because they're at a company with a culture where everybody needed to be able to check in all the time and break stuff, which there could be valid reasons for that, but that's why they might have 40 branches instead of everybody checking into master or well, a waterfall model. That's why I was, I mean, a release, that's why, because we were talking about how scary it is if you had a release engineer who was, you know, doing all the merging and didn't actually code. I mean, it wasn't, that wasn't their primary duty, wasn't writing the code, but the reason was, is I was not, I didn't care about the code, I cared about the build. Right. Um, so, if it built or didn't pass tests, and so I... Which is an interesting I, silo to kind right. of create, isn't it? It's very interesting, because, but it was needed because I was the one who could say no. I was right. the one who could say, no, this is bad, this is wrong, and the developer could argue with me all day, but I wasn't there to serve the developer. I was there to protect protect kind of like the sanctity of that build, because I was the one who then eventually put the bits onto the live servers, or put the bits up to like Microsoft, or, or these, these companies that were packaging it up, and so it was my responsibility, and I dare say duty, to kind of be, be that, I don't want to say a- but to, to occasionally push back because I had to say no. I had to say no. We can't deploy this. It didn't pass the tests that way. We and that's a, that's that's a cultural engineering decision because I uh, had a, a 
colleague that I worked with who he reported to directly to the VP of engineering and, and was told directly that you are here to serve the developers and therefore if a developer, it doesn't matter who it is and what they ask for, if you say no, like pre pretend that any developer in the entire organization asking you something is me asking you something. And it was a very, uh, <laughs> it was a very interesting because it's, you know, it's basically like, you know, shut the fuck up and, and never yeah. have an opinion about anything. That's, that's, I mean, I've, I've had, I've been in the position where I have, uh, I argued with several of my superiors about pushing stuff, yeah, you know, into a branch, and it turned out in, in the long run, it, it, I won't tell the whole story, but basically, I, I refused, and I said I would like, and that was ordered, and I was like, well, give it to me in writing, and then when you push in, it breaks, I won't get any blame, right. and that's exactly what happened. Right. Um, and then somebody way, way farther up the chain was like, who let this happen? I was like, not me. <laughs> like, here's my email. Let me for it. Yeah, exactly. And I actually, and it was at the time that was the boss. You know, people above me were like, wow, you're being real jack about this. I'm like, no, no, I'm protect. It was protecting the build, protecting the branch. Right. So, uh, yeah, it's it's a cultural thing, and it can it can go either way. Uh, yes, it really is a cultural thing, and it's interesting that that is something you know we talk a lot about in DevOps. That the way that I often talk about being relegated to the support team that is just told to do whatever the developers want, you hear that a lot with operations people too, where it's like just let whatever crap you you've talked about this, Sasha. Whatever crap tarballs they throw at you, you have to be like Keanu in the Matrix and just kind of dodge the bullets and catch it and then make it work. And it's interesting to see that sort of fundamental cultural shift start to happen. Right. Well, so the topic was prompted by a Git specific question. So I did actually want to talk a little bit about Git, specific Git branch and merge stuff. So first off, I think one of the big topics that comes up, and you see this a lot, and we mentioned it, is Git flow. People have usually heard of Git flow. We'll add a link to it in the show notes. But also, there's an interesting discussion about I, I, the way that I, I would describe it is if the person responsible for deciding your branching and merging model says just use Git flow, then that person probably shouldn't be responsible for making that decision. And I only say that it because Gitflow is a great model, but I've seen it applied to products and workflows that it doesn't make sense. It's a very, uh, in my experience, continuous delivery and web service-centric model, which means that if you have any other kind of product, you may have other requirements. And I've seen people just whack-a-mole, smash it with a hammer into this other product type, and it it never works well. Uh, we've actually applied it to, at least at Basho, to almost all of our our repositories, and it, it's it, granted we're still figuring it out, but it seems to work very well for us so far. I mean, we're we're get, we're teething right now, um, so we're so, finding problems with it. But it, it for you know, this is for a database that exists on multiple platforms, so it's it's I, I wouldn't I, I would argue that it's not just web centric. That would, that would, no, no, I would, no, no, no. That's not how I would put it. And I, what you said is exactly what I have seen is that somebody, people are like, yeah, let's start the yak shave of what Git branching model we should use. And someone is like, they search on Google Git branching model and Git flows like the first link. And they're like, yeah, let's use that. And so then they go and try to use it, but nobody ever thinks about well, what are the requirements? Where are we going to have to tweak it? Where in the workflow that we might, it might make sense as a good model to start, but it might evolve. And my point is, I just, my, my response to that would be, why don't why not just use Gitflow? It's like, well, why not just use Erlang for whatever you're doing? Like, there are different 
different requirements. So you might actually do things differently. And we'll link to it. GitHub doesn't use GitFlow. They have a different model, and they explain the problems with GitFlow and why they've chosen a different model. The one very interesting point, I was rereading it again today, and one point that he makes, a lot of people really, really like GitFlow because you can drop the commands in to get the workflow on the command line. But if you use any of the great graphical tools, it doesn't apply. The, the, you know, the, the, the workflow can't influence like Git GUI or some of the other graphical tools. And uh, I, I can remember, Seth, were you and I talking about this once where it's like you had this process, but there was an easy way. Oh, I know what it was. Did we ever talk about that? I actually worked a place that had a Perforce wrapper. They they wrapped, Google actually does. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so they wrapped Perforce in a different command that did other things, but if you do that, you run the risk of somebody will just go, well, I'm smart, and I don't want to do it that way, so I'll just use the Perforce stuff directly. Yeah, they call it, like, yeah, they Google wraps it in, like, G4 or something, yep. like, yeah. wrap the yeah. command, something like, I can't remember exa- the precise, but yeah, they, they wrap it, which may make sense, but then you, yeah, you always run the risk of that, that one. That crafty engineer. Like, oh, this looks like Perforce, or crafty, or just didn't know. You know so maybe yeah. he missed, like, the, you know, maybe he missed some critical training thing that was like, hey, whatever you do, don't do that. Right. And totally does it, as as people often tend to do. Um, and I actually think there's often confusion between GitHub and Git, and one of the biggest things that, you know, and this is where I think I think in this discussion people are going to be like, oh, there's Preet hating on Git again. And I'm not, but I am pointing out that these are the problems that I see people running into. And one of the bigger ones that I see that I thought no Git hosting sites do this, but I was corrected. Bitbucket allows you to do this. GitHub, as far as I know does not uh, allowing you to force push to certain branches you know that's another one where you can have all of the git flow process you want but if someone just reads the error message wrong or it's just like I don't screw it. I want I want to get my code push and dash dash forces. I mean I've actually done that once. I'm gonna say I'll cop to it. And so having <laughs> having I often describe it as the and this was at a client too. And I had to send out like I had a copy of the repo and I was like here are the two commits that are missing. I know one of you has them because you haven't pulled or anything yet. So let's go find those commits and re re push them. So I I often think of it as bumper bowling because I I was always a crappy bowler anyway. But some of these features that disallow force pushing to certain branches are actually a good thing. Gitalite is another tool. If you custom host your Git repositories, Gitalite can help with some of that and it's super useful. I was going to say that is actually really great when you have controls like that. And that's one of the things I actually liked about Perforce. Perforce is a permissions model built in. So you can you can control you can be like, nope, you can't actually push to this branch, or you can't even integrate, or you can't. So you could control that. So you didn't have to, you could protect yourself from, I guess, bad actors, right. um, which is, it's not that you always need that, but when you have that, you know that people could get around it. It's It just kind of takes away that fear. It doesn't right. solve all of your problems or all of your branching problems or any of those other things. And it's there are a lot of other things that come along with that. But man, it was nice because I'm like, you can't touch this branch, basically. And I, I, you know, I can make sure that you can't touch this branch. Right. Well, you know, and you know what's interesting about that? I tend to frame it the way you framed it, which is bad actors. But I think a lot of people that want to argue for people should be able to do whatever they want and we should just trust them. And why don't you trust people? And what's wrong with you? And, you know, you get that pushback a lot. It's because it gets framed as bad actors. And and again, I've been guilty of framing it that way too. And here, here's the, the thing I would say about that is I've worked with engineers that they're, they're good engineers, but they didn't really understand Perforce all that much. And so they've struggled with like getting 
things submitted with Perforce. And Git is even harder. It's more difficult to use. And so it's not it's not even so much people being bad actors. It could be just people screwing up because it's late. It's 4 a.m. They pushed the wrong branch with the force flag because they thought they were pushing their feature branch, which is allowed by the process or whatever it is. I mean, people can make mistakes too, and that that can help with that as well. Yeah, people can make mistakes. You can drop something on your keyboard. I mean, there's all kinds yeah. of things. It's not it's bad actors. Maybe not. It's just because it's bad. Bad doesn't necessarily mean malevolent. It's it's just. I mean, you could just say nonsensical actors, or you I mean you could use you could have another. You could you could have you could call it a bunch of different things, but it's it's it, uh, it's essentially the same thing. Right. Right. Um, well, so uh, one thing I wanted to discuss was a merge commits versus no merge commits because there's a lot of debate on this, and and this is basically if you've got a branch that you've committed three or four things on, like a feature branch, and it merges cleanly into the parent branch, should you use a fast forward merge or should you use a merge commit? And I've seen arguments on both sides. Again, this is get specific. What do you guys think? I actually have no opinion on that. That's one of the few one of the few branching and merging things I have no opinion on. Well, so I think it's a good question for every organization to actually ask themselves because I think it's useful to sort of at least have that discussion. How many times have you seen things like and gets log messages around this are horrible where it's like merge master branch of blah into master branch of blah. It's like merge the master branch into itself. And you see that as a merge commit and it's basically somebody developed some code and there was a conflict and so they the trees diverged and then they merged them back together. And there's a way to solve that without a merge commit marking that. So it's just something that you should ask yourself, I think, organizationally. Because I think merge commits on the same branch that are actually merging the trees of the same branch back together should be discouraged because they muddy up the history in a way that doesn't need to be muddied. But if you're actually doing a merge of a branch and you actually want to record that a merge took place, I was reading a blog post that was talking about it's really useful if you need to back out that merge, you can do a git revert of the merge commit itself to accomplish that, as opposed to having to revert four or five patches that you fast forward merged. And again, who says Git isn't user friendly, right? <laughs> this is fast forward merges versus merge commits were not really something you had to worry about in in uh, Subversion or uh, Perforce. And then finally, to get to actually your question, Brian, uh, one of the interesting things, and actually, uh, Seth, you probably remember this with Perforce, the different merge strategies that, that the tool could apply oh, yeah. uh, to a merge. Get a ton. Except, except yours, ex- except ex- merge. Ex- yeah. Oh, God, I miss, I miss that. <laughs> that, was, that was just so nice. There's a little radio button. You're like, yeah, just I know what I want. And just it was, it was like, I don't actually want to go through the complex thing of going through every file. Just take, take the shit that I've got and put it in, like, take this shit and put it in this thing like right exactly done let's exactly um, yeah well so all i was going to mention about that is a, a couple of interesting things git actually used to have an ours and theirs and it was basically a yours and theirs that Perforce had. We'll link to a, a post. I, I was trying to figure out if they brought it back. It was sort of unclear to me because I was looking in Git 1.8 and I was reading the documentation there. Um, but I know that at some point they removed the theirs strategy and we'll link to the message. And this is one of the things that I found very interesting. A, a friend of mine often says that Git is reinventing corporate SCM and they're doing it poorly. Uh, and what he meant by that is he was saying, you know, Perforce has all these weird options that don't generally make sense, but it's because there are use cases where they actually are useful. And so this message was describing, well, in the common open source use case, you would never want to use a theirs merge because you would want to always discuss with the upstream project. And there's like all of this sort of culturally relevant stuff. 
to open source, but it wouldn't be relevant in a corporate context or in a business context where it's not like a upstream project you have to go negotiate with. And so they actually removed one of these options, and I and I it was unclear to me whether they actually brought it back because they realized that the reasoning wasn't wasn't particularly valid. But anyway, and then finally, of course, the question: What is an octopus merge, and how does it work? I actually went and looked at the code today. It is a shell script. It's not one of Git's kind of lower tools that are written in C or whatever. And Sounds basically, scary. it is. Well, the idea that... Uh, so I, I was reading sort of what it was designed to do. And the idea is that basically the integration engineer role, or say you've got eight engineers that have been working on the PCI subsystem of the Linux kernel. And you've got the lieutenant, and I don't even know who that is these days, who wants to grab all of those branches at once and merge them all in once. Basically, Octopus is uh, similar to recursive, except instead of two merge parents, it's N merge parents, where N could be three or it could be a hundred. And I think probably one of the... So I was reading through it and trying to figure out like where this would be useful, and I was reading through the source code. The source code is actually not that long, and it's easy to see why. Basically, it takes each merge head, either remote or local, and tries to merge it in the order that you specify on the command line. And where a lot of the confusion comes from is that you can have a git octopus merge that if you do it in a certain order, it'll work, and if you do it in another order, it won't work. And that has to do with the fact that it's using lower-level commands to do the merge, and the logic of an octopus merge is that because the merge itself could be potentially as complicated as it as it is, they basically make it such that if you have to do any manual conflict resolution, they stop and they basically say, no, you need to resolve that conflict on one of the merge heads. Basically, they want to avoid the thing where if I'm merging two heads and there's a conflict, like it's easy to look at the merge commit and see, oh, there was a conflict and it got resolved and notice the content difference. But if you're merging 100 heads or even 10 different, if you're merging 10 different branches, they don't want you like making conflict edits and resolutions in the context of that merge. They basically want everything to merge cleanly. And so that's why there's a lot of confusion around it and a lot of people like get different results if they do things slightly differently. So, so how, how's, how is that any different than uh, cherry-picking revisions? Like in Subversion, for example, you have... 10 revisions and you, to avoid having conflicts you got to do you got to do them in order and then if you skip one you're gonna I mean it kind of sounds like the the cherry picking revisions well thing. so it's it, you have to be careful when we talk about cherry picking because cherry pick is an actual git command and so to clarify you're not asking about that you're asking no, about the I'm not talking about git cherry pick okay. Yeah. okay the reason that it's different and uh, actually I was going to bring this up this is a very important distinction and it's kind of subtle but it turns out that the complexity from all this stuff comes up as a result of this distinction. Systems like Subversion and Perforce are sort of namespace based. And what I mean by that is when you create a branch in Subversion, it's in the branches foo branch directory. Same thing in Perforce. It creates a new what is effectively a directory. It creates a new barrel to put the content into. And then when you actually do a merge operation, what you are actually doing is you're copying content from one code line or barrel or bucket to another code line barrel or bucket or directory is how they're often modeled if you're talking thinking about it like that. And so you're actually shuffling this content across the wire. Systems like Git, the code lines are actually trees and they're addressed by content markers. So in other words, master is actually just a pointer 
to a content marker that has parents that you can trace back, and that turns out to be what the code line is. And so the reason it's different than moving a commit over one by one or a range of commits over in the subversion case is because the way subversion is going to handle that is it's going to take the content, the differences between those files, and shuttle them across the wire and try to apply them in this new namespace, this new directory or directory structure. Whereas Git, when it's actually doing an octopus merge or any other kind of merge, it's actually merging content tree structures together, and then it looks at the actual directory structures that are identified by the commits in the trees. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense, but they're, they're, functionally they both sound the same. The, the reason they aren't is because the actual way the merge gets applied is it's looking at, like, I'm going to take this content and try to apply it to this other namespace, this other folder on my machine, whereas where Git, what Git is doing is it's like going up the trees and looking at the differences that way, and then merging the actual trees together. So in practice, actually a better way to say it is that it's funny you use the term cherry pick. If you were to do that in subversion, where you basically take a commit and apply them in order, you would use something like git cherry pick to do that if you were using git. And the difference with, again, the octopus merge, and this is actually the last thing I was going to say about octopus merges, uh, because probably bored everyone to death, is that in my opinion, if you are regularly using octopus merges, you're probably doing something wrong. Now, I say that hesitantly, but the reason I say that is that octopus merges were, according to the documentation and the source code even, their main use case was for integration engineers or open source maintainers to pull a bunch of remote development together and have that be easy. And so the idea is that if you're in a GitHub world, you're doing pull requests. If you're in a regular Git world, you're probably just doing regular merges that use the recursive strategy. And so if you're relying on octopus merge strategy a lot, it probably means that there's some chaos going on in your repository that it would be better to look at more holistically. So, Brian, there's your answer. What was that? I think I fell asleep. Yeah, that was, <laughs> sorry. I, yeah. Mm. So this is one of those things, like I said, it's one of the things I like talking about a lot, but but it's, it's interesting because we were talking about everybody loves to sort of yak shave it, but then you get it down into the nitty-gritty details, and then it can put people to sleep, and then you kind of realize the answer is they just don't want to have to use rebase because it's hard or something like that. So yes, that's why they should just like check in tiny changes lots and everything should just work. <laughs> well, you hope. And then yeah. we can read the internet if it doesn't. Right. <laughs> well, I'm, <laughs> I mean, well, I'm going to do it until it doesn't work and then I'm going to actually look at the documentation because well, I don't thing... have time to become a master of version control at the same time. Well, as... you know that Paul has, has not done this through reading the documentation ahead of time either. He's done it because he's had to like cope. Yeah. They actually, it's a good way to put it. But the other thing is, I've I've destroyed my share of GitHub repositories, and these are all like personal repositories where then I go actually grab the backup and then find the files that I've changed and reapply them. So I've done it. It's it's lessons learned through a lot of pain. I guess the parting thought that I would leave on the subject is we've talked about this concept in previous episodes of a language lawyer, somebody who really understands the in and ins and outs of Git and who understands why you're using the code line management, why you should or shouldn't use merge commits and suggest that to the organization. I think Subversion and Perforce were easy enough to use that you could kind of like tags, branches, trunk were pretty standard in the Subversion world. In the Git world, having a language lawyer or a SCM lawyer, uh, as the case may be, is probably super helpful. But of course, we'd love to hear from the audience. I'm sure people would love to tell me where I'm wrong, and and I'm sure that uh, I may have fibbed on a a couple of things or missed a couple of things, so feel free to uh, 
feel free to correct me. I, it's more about getting the right answer out there. Uh, but I, I looked at the source code, and it looked pretty simple. And, and uh, so I think I read it correctly, but I only took about 20 minutes to skim it today. So, um, But yes, uh, tweet us at Chip Show Podcast about your branching, merging horror stories, your get horror stories, or your get tips. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll, uh, we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Ship Show. So for our last segment tonight, we're going to do a tooltip. We're going to be looking at Storm, which isn't what you might think it was. Actually, uh, Yusuf was like, uh, is that the, the Twitter Hadoop thing? And it is not the Twitter Hadoop thing. Storm is a command line tool to help manage your SSH connections. It's written in Python, uh, and I downloaded it and gave it a try. Uh, and it basically allows you to manage your... Uh, it, it's basically a nice command line front end to editing your SSH config. So the example they actually give is if you have a lot of AWS instances that have weird host names and you don't have to remember them, um, you can you can basically give them symbolic names. The example they give is like web web zero, web one, web two actually map to the big EC2 dash IP address dot EU West one, blah blah blah, with the right port number. So if you have jump hosts or things that are listening to SSH on weird port numbers, you can all store that. You can also associate specific SSH keys with specific hosts. Uh, and then also I think you can add uh, SSH options too if you have a port forward that you always use with a jump host or something. You can do all configure all that through this tool. It's written in Python, so you can download it uh, with uh, pip install, which is what I did, pip install storm SSH. And then, like I said, if you, you know, a, a lot of us have tons of hosts that we need to manage and this kind of gives a nice front end to it and allows you to name things, uh, symbolically name things, hosts by role or something like that so you don't have to remember uh, weird host names, uh, which is especially useful with uh, cloud operations like AWS and stuff like that. Did you guys uh, have a chance to peruse the, the page for this? Looking through it, that looks pretty slick. That in combination with something like Terminator or Screen or something like that, uh, I think it would be pretty damn awesome. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I really like too that that it basically manages manages these entries as like you say storm add symbolic name, and then it will actually deal with uh, all of the options you want. I just played with it kind of. Uh, I just defined like the a couple of hosts that I use, but. It's super useful in my use case for like working on client instances. So if a client has a bunch of AWS stuff, I use a different SSH key so that if for some reason my key were to get compromised or something, it doesn't affect them. But they may have jump hosts or AWS hosts, and I want to symbolically name them in such a way that I can remember whose who's actual machine is whose. It, it works great for that kind of use case. Yeah, it uh, looks like a pretty cool tool, kind of like a front-end to your uh, SSH config, and I'm definitely going to check it out, because especially if you've got a bunch of different GitHub accounts, you know, one for work, one for your personal stuff, maybe one for something else. Uh, it would be nice to maintain different profiles for that. Yeah, so, yeah, and the, yeah. the other thing—the other thing I was noticing too—is I I used to have a lot of bash aliases that were like alias foo is SSH with all of these extra options and different port numbers and weirdness like that. And now you can actually again do that symb- symbolically via this tool. So now you're saying SSH foo, and it will incorporate all that really nicely. That would be kind of slick too. Is um, so if you're doing any sort of auto scaling and your web 1, web 2, web 3, whatever machines are here today and totally different AWS machines tomorrow or in an hour from now, you could even just like cron that up to repoint those things so they're hitting the uh, 
right, AWS services. This is actually, I'm going to take a look at this tomorrow. I'm going to spend a good portion of my day tomorrow trying to get this wired up. This is pretty slick. Yeah, so you know what's funny? It, it won't take that long. So I pip installed it, and then I did storm SSH, I think, list, which lists all of the entries. And it if you already have entries defined in your SSH config, it reads them and parses them and shows them to you. So getting started with it is really just a two-second pip install command. And so that part is super easy to get set up. The more interesting part is the different use cases. Uh, so that would be great, actually. I, I love users that are using Storm, or if you sit down with a cup of coffee and kind of figure out different use cases for Storm that are more than what's kind of listed in the documentation, we'd love to hear them because I always love hearing tips and tricks like that. We'd like to point out a conference that's coming up. It's the, the first year that this conference has been happening, it's been, and it's being put on by some names you'll probably recognize. We're talking, of course, of FlowCon, which is November 1st here in San Francisco, being put on by Gene Kim, whom you might know as the author of The Phoenix Project, and also Jazz Humble, uh, who you might know as one of the authors of the Continuous Delivery book. Also, it turns out that there is a discount for uh, Ship Show podcast listeners, if you go to the FlowCon registration uh, website, and we'll put a link in the show notes, and use the keyword "ship show," you can receive a 10% discount. And uh, Sasha will be speaking there, so along with we'll put a link to the schedule as well. There are a bunch of other talks that look like they're going to be fascinating. So uh, FlowCon, November 1st, San Francisco. All right. So from San Francisco, this is Paul Reed signing off. From San Diego, this is Yusuf signing off. From Drake, Massachusetts, this is EJ Sermelo signing off. From Dallas, Texas, this is Seth signing off. From Minneapolis, this is Sasha signing off. And have a great couple of weeks.